So those of you who don't know, the reason he's saying it's the last time you'll get to call me Principal Luke, this is my last year as a school principal um, in the midst of changing careers. So part of what I've found being a principal is that my heart really goes out to not just the struggling kid or the kid who's been through trauma, and if you've heard me speak about some of this before, you know, or if you work with kids, you know it, um, but also what's the cause of it and how do we help parents or make disciples, really, of parents. So part of the new venture that I'm going for is to do more of that and then maybe some more trips to Africa and things like that too. So lots of adventures ahead. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask you to, that your will be done. I ask it to be done in our hearts. Uh, the Holy Spirit, you're invited in our midst to minister uh, your fire, your cleansing fire in our hearts, wherever there's sin, uh, wherever our hearts have, have run astray from you, uh, correct us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand and read the scriptures. We're going to be in Exodus 34 to start. It says, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. This is the word of the Lord. All right, that's a fun way to start, huh? Let's go right to the Old Testament. So I'm teaching on jealousy. God, this is a 20-week series. It's more than 20 weeks, right? But it, 20 sermons about the attributes of God, and it was broken into two big sections, the things that God has that you don't get, and the things that God has that you do get, right? And so we're in the second part, but jealousy is a strange thing. And if you look through the Bible, you see verses, many, many verses like this, do your word study on jealousy. God is a jealous God, and it always comes back to the metaphor of a husband and a wife, that he has bought us, he has saved us, he has sacrificed for us in a way that a husband should sacrifice for a wife and lead his wife, and he's jealous for our affection. But there are many things I discovered as I went through this. One is that the Bible does not encourage you to be jealous. So this is one of those maybe in-between sections of are we like God when we do this? In fact, the New Testament refers to jealousy in lists of many other sins, right? Sometimes when you're reading the New Testament, it'll say, because, because the law has been fulfilled in Christ, you know, how do we set boundaries? How do you know when you're moving away from God if you said the law doesn't apply to us, right? In the same way that it applies to the Jewish people. So the New Testament often gives you this list of things that when you start to see these fruit come in your heart and in your life, you know you're straying from what God is and who he is, and so you need to bring yourself back. And jealousy is constantly listed, five times at least, that I could find, as a sinful behavior for us, even though it's many more times than that listed as an attribute of God. In fact, God even says, my name is jealous. If you want to know who I am, know that I am jealous. And jealousy with God, I also found, always comes back to culture. He always talks about, I'm jealous for you because you started to take on the attributes of the people who don't love me. 
you started to follow after their, what's normal to them instead of what I've commanded you to set your sights on, something higher. And so many of you have some pet uh, topics, right, that you think, yeah, our culture is really messed up, and uh, here's, here's why. And what I want to challenge today is that there's more than just the ones you'd like to complain about, that God's calling you to analyze your heart and to turn back to him, that he's jealous for your affection. So what are some examples from the Bible of jealousy being destructive? I mean, it's some of the worst. It all begins with Cain killing Abel. That Abel, his sacrifice was acceptable to God. That God even came personally to Cain and said, look, sin is at your door. It's trying to master you. If only you would stay with me. If only you could master it, conquer it yourself. And he refused. He refused to stay with God. The Sanhedrin crucified Jesus explicitly, the Bible says, because of their jealousy, that the crowds were following after him. Joseph's brothers, it says, sold him into slavery because of their jealousy that he was favored of their father. Paul was attacked by religious Jews who at first, when he would come to a new place and maybe they hadn't heard of Paul or even the gospel, when they would hear his message, they would say, this is good, until they saw the crowds following after him and all the people converting to a new way of thinking, and to a new leader. And now those people who had set their God as being influential, well, those people turned on Paul through jealousy. There's one time in the Bible, in the New Testament, when jealousy is listed as godly. And I want to hold that till the end, because I want you to think about this. So here's what I think. I'm trying to make connections between our jealousy and God's jealousy, I think they are the same. Our jealousy says something's not getting worshipped enough. Someone is not getting worshipped enough. But when we're jealous, it's that we're putting ourselves in the place of God. When God's jealous, it's that he says, I made you and it's for your best that you worship me. I made you to worship the one true God and you're destroying yourself. Come and worship me like you were made to do. Those are very different. I have a really powerful story of jealousy that I remember. It overwhelmed me as a young man. I was working in a job, and I was not in the position that I wanted to be in. And there was a coworker, someone else, who didn't even want the job that I wanted, but was getting sort of groomed to take it. And I was overwhelmed with jealousy for this guy. And the hardest part was, he was a great guy. I, I didn't have anything against him, except that I could feel my heart turn against him. And he would come and like coach me and help me out. And it just made it worse. And I would sit there in the midst of this jealousy, thinking, man, this is like, I can't turn it off. It was overwhelming. I would, he would stand and I would see him speaking and I would criticize every little thing for no reason. And I realized, I mean, I never did figure out how to conquer it. In the end, he, he didn't get the job that, he, that I wanted, and neither did I. But um, I realized that the reason was that I was putting that job, and really this, the recognition of getting that job, in place of God. 
that it would be my security, that it would be my value if I could get what I wanted. And that's the beginning of turning from God himself. Because God has called you to put your security and your value in him. That he bought you. He owns you. So why would you get value from the attention of other people? Why would you get your security and your sense of well-being from a job that could be gone tomorrow? But we do. We do it every day. The thing you are jealous about is the thing you've made your God. Your jealousy shows what you love. Your jealousy shows what you worship. And your jealousy shows what you truly believe. I didn't think that I had put that job opportunity as my object of worship. But my jealousy showed that I had. That's what was in my deepest heart. That's what I had chosen to love. God wants to take what you've chosen to love and turn it toward him. He's jealous for your affection. All right, let's look at a couple places from the teaching of Jesus. First in Matthew 10. It says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me isn't worthy. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus comes and he puts it all down. He says, this is the highest love, and every other love is not enough. Now, I remember once having a conversation with someone and saying, okay, well, I can love money, I just can't love it more than God, right? And they point to this verse. I can love uh, my spouse, I just can't love my spouse more than God, right? My children. I mean, these are, it gets to the heart of it. But what's neat is that uh, it's not just Matthew that we have it. There's Luke as well. So let's look at Luke 14. If you think about uh, the apostles are following Jesus around from town to town, he spends, you know, weeks, maybe months, I don't know, in one village. And you'll hear him at times, he'll say, you know, especially as the crowds start to get big, as he does these big miracles, or maybe he feeds thousands of people, he'll say, okay, I got to go. There's more places I've been called to, right? But these apostles and some of the other followers who traveled with Jesus, they would hear his sermons again and again. So if you've ever wondered, why does Luke's version not quite line up with Matthew? Well, he gave the sermon dozens of times. So it's very likely that the sermon changed in certain ways. If you think of both the audience and more and more as Jesus is seeing how the culture that he's in is being affected by what he's saying. And what I like about Luke, and if you can go to that verse, Luke often makes things a little bit harder than Matthew does. There's a lot of similarities. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's the same. But let's look at this. He says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple at all. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's interesting to me that the love of God is immediately connected with being humiliated and murdered by the culture, by the authorities, by the powers that be. 
to say that you've got to carry your cross to follow me in a culture that all understands what that means, in a culture of public execution, right? That you might walk, let's say we're all going to walk to Sio today, and along the road might be some people dying on crosses, just so you know that the Romans are in charge. And Jesus says, that's what it means to love me. It's not a small thing. Why is loving God, why does Jesus understand and want you to understand that loving him might mean your death? Because when you worship God himself, the people of the world will be jealous that you're not worshiping their God. Just like jealousy shows what you worship, your jealousy does, so it is with the world. And your natural love for your family will get in the way when it comes down to it. We watched this incredible documentary when I was in Africa. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine watching a documentary about missionaries suffering in the midst of sitting with missionaries who are suffering, but it makes the documentary way more meaningful. (laughs) Um, They were interviewing, a missionary had gone to all the hardest places in the world that it is to be a Christian, places that you have to hide your faith. And he kind of snuck in to do these interviews, 25 different nations around the world, and ask them what it was like to suffer for the gospel. And there was a story, there were several stories that were just heartbreaking. Um, But I remember one was a father sitting with his family at breakfast and saying, the government has just said, this was in the former Soviet Union, the government has just said that uh, anyone who won't renounce the gospel, will uh, we'll go to prison. And it might have been being executed. There were a lot of stories, right? But it was like as severe as you could imagine. And the dad said to his children, if I ever, have to, if I ever see you go to prison, I will never be more proud than in that moment. And there was another man who was also, he was actually jailed for teaching, teaching a Bible study. He wasn't even a pastor. He just wouldn't stop having a Bible study at his house for, like, kids. And um, after months and months in prison, he was all but dead from torture and starvation. It was like a sack of bones in rags. But there was a visiting day, and they would torture him far more than the other prisoners. In fact, many of the prisoners were recruited to punish him more severely because it's always a question of power, and if you're in prison for the thing you won't quit doing, and you still won't quit doing it, I imagine the suffering will be even more severe, and it was for him. And so his family heard there was an opportunity at this prison to have visitation. They hadn't seen him in many, many months, and when they came, he didn't come out for, for hours, and they were about to leave, and they see these guys dragging what just looked like a bag, and they laid it on the table in front of him, and he was there in those rags, lying in front of his family, almost unable to move. And his son looked at him and said, I'm so proud of you, Dad. Because he wouldn't give up. Because he had one love. That love gave him so much more than trying to protect the little gods that you worship. Because he could have so many times protected 
To count the cost means to love God so much that the world might want to murder you. God's jealousy is always connected to his wrath. He grows angry when we worship other gods. The gods, I think, always come down to three things. Comfort, ambition, and recognition. When we pursue those things, we leave God behind. When we choose comfort, when we choose ambition, when we choose recognition. Because jealousy is the reaction to unholiness. Holiness means to be set apart, right? It's different from, I mean, very tightly connected to righteousness. We've talked about this before. Righteousness is the right things that you do, to be in the right state before God, right? Holiness is like the priests. The priests were set apart from the other people. So there's the normal people, and then there's what's holy. There's the normal objects, and then there's the things set apart, that these objects are only for God. But as Christians who've been bought by the blood of Christ, he's called all of us to be set apart and separated for his purpose. Not just a few. We all are called to be priests, a holy people belonging to God. To be set apart means something. It means something to God. It can't just be that you don't do the wrong things because he's jealous for your affection. All right, so the main verse I want to go through is in James 4. If you have a Bible, would you turn to James 4? Uh, I want to look at that together. Right at the beginning, there's a long passage, and we're going to go through it. In fact, I'm going to turn my Bible on and do it too, because I want the whole thing. James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All right, let's look at verses 1 through 3. This is pretty heavy. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions? If God's jealousy is stirred when your affections, your passions, are misaligned, then it would make sense that it would start to cause jealousy among you, that your comfort or your recognition or your, what was the third one? Your ambition, right? That was mine. (laughs) That those are getting in the way of worshiping God, that you've chosen those, in fact, over God. It would also then make sense that he would say your prayers don't get answered. I mean, imagine, if you would, that your own children came to you and they demanded that you serve them. They gave you a terrible attitude. They themselves 
or their own priority, their own desires, and then they come after all this terrible attitude and talking back. I mean, none of your kids do this, I know. Mine never do either. And my parents are here, so they know I never did this as a kid either. But imagine then they come and say, now, give me money, give me what I want, and why don't you? But we've given our hearts to comfort. We've given our hearts to our own ambition or to recognition from others. And then we say to God, why won't you answer our prayers? As a parent, I know that if my child, and I'll tell you as a teacher and as a principal, it's exactly the same. If a child comes to me with a terrible attitude and then immediately afterward asks for something important to them, it would be unloving of me to give it to them. Not because I'm angry, though I might be, because it would not be good for them to think that they are God and that their desires, or as James says, their passions are what matter most. They don't. God is jealous for your affection, and if your affections have been given to other things, God, in his love, will not answer your prayers especially when it comes to those passions. James calls it adultery. You notice James is reading the Old Testament, right? All the New Testament authors, when they talk about the Bible, they begin to talk about each other's writings as Scripture. But for the most part, everything they're referring to is the Old Testament. Everything they're thinking of when they write about God is the Old Testament, right? So if a New Testament author is writing about jealousy, in their mind are all the Old Testament references that they've grown up listening to and reading and memorizing. So none of this has changed because God doesn't change, right? I mean, that's why the faith of Abraham is is our faith. That's why Jesus, when he died on the cross, it says he went to bring lead captives out of death. It was talking about the Old Testament believers, right? Jesus brings them back. Because their faith is the same as ours, their redemption is the same as ours, and God is the same God. But look at what James does. He says, do you not know, this is verse 4, the friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It goes back to the same thing Jesus was saying. If you're going to love me, if you're going to really love me, Expect a cross. And if you don't get a cross, Jesus actually warns about this in another place. If the world starts to approve of everything you're doing, be assured you're doing it wrong. Because they crucified him, why would you expect less for yourself? So friendship with the world is adultery. You make yourself an enemy of God. And maybe that's why your prayers aren't getting answered. You know, at the men's retreat, we had a really good conversation about what's God's attitude toward us. It was a tough conversation because, and um, Ken actually described it really well, he said he has this overlay is what he said, and I really related to this. It's like a voice in his head that he thinks of as God's attitude toward himself, but it might really be his own attitude, right? Of frustration, of disappointment, of continual failure, And so when he thinks of what does God think of him, his first thought is always his own frustration and that that's really what God must feel. And we had this conversation of, 
Well, is that how God feels? You know, and Sam made the point, I think, really well, is that if all of your sins are forgiven, even the ones you're sinning now, why would God be mad at you? And I think that's the right question. And I think it comes back to when God is longing, when he is jealous for your affection, and we think of that as being selfish anger because our jealousy is selfish anger. We put ourselves on God. We're seeing him wrong. His jealousy for our affection is one of love and sacrifice and what's best for you. And James says it comes down to pride. God opposes the proud. To commit adultery against God, to love other things. It's all really to love yourself. Because pride says you're the most important. And I've, I love saying this because I think it's fundamental that insecurity, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about self-esteem. Self-esteem and its promotion is just as prideful as the most arrogant narcissist. It's the other side of the same coin. If you think you're a terrible person and all you can think about is your flaws, the problem is you're only thinking about yourself. What God has called you to do, when he says in Matthew, take up your cross and follow me, if you want to save your life, let it go, that means letting your reputation go. Your reputation even before God, the part of yourself that when you look and think about God and pray, you say, what's wrong with me? I'm not worthy to be here. I keep messing up. The Holy Spirit is saying, let that go. I did. I loved you enough to die for you. Pride drives you away from God because it turns your heart to adultery. And adultery really comes down to this question. The question is, if only it were different, then what would I get? Right? Think about real adultery. Many of you, well, I don't know if it's many, but some of you have experienced either having adultery committed against you in your marriage or perhaps committing it yourself. How does it begin? If only it were different. You know, you think about, I've heard stories of people committing adultery and they talk about a distant, a distant spouse. My spouse was just so, I couldn't connect. And then there was this other person at the gym or at work or wherever, right? And they just really listened to me. And I think, hmm, how often does God feel distant? How often have our hearts turned away from him because of it? And God is the most loving example of a spouse you can give. He gives himself as that example. He's called us to be his, you know, to the wedding feast. If only it were different. And so we turn emotionally to others, right? Going back to the real concept of adultery. Perhaps it begins with uh, text messaging, right? complaining. Who do you complain to? Who do you tell your fears to? Is it your spouse? It should be. But be careful when it isn't, when it's someone else, right? Isn't that where it begins? I don't know that there's a married soul on earth who hasn't felt that beginning. Jesus says to lust in your heart is the beginning, is to commit adultery in your heart. It's the beginning of turning away. 
And perhaps you've trained yourself, I would challenge you to if you haven't, to be very sensitive to that. To be very sensitive to what you say to someone of the opposite sex, to how you spend time with them. I hope you have. Train yourself that way. But also train yourself to be sensitive to where your heart is with God. Because it's obvious, I think, it's obvious to me to not commit adultery, right? I mean, you could see it. I have a wife in front of me. She's, we're at home together every day. Like, it's right there. But God can feel so different, even though he's given so much more. Train your heart to be sensitive that I, I can feel myself going astray. Where do you turn to for comfort? Where do you turn to for recognition? Where have you aimed your ambition? I want to remind you this, it's not about rules. You know, with adultery and lust and those things, growing up in the church, my reaction has always been, I've got to set up rules for myself, you know? I remember being in youth group. And in youth group, when they talk about lust, it's all about rules. And any time you put a fence up, what it does is it allows people to, to explore everywhere within that fence, right? If you go to a playground without a fence, the kids stay close to the play structure. If you put a, they, they don't go out to the edge, but if you put a fence up, now they explore out because it's all, it's all safe. The fence says it's safe. And we don't feel safe in our worship of God, especially when it comes to our kids, and we don't want them to fall into the sins that we did. So we put up fences, even though the Bible clearly teaches it's about your heart. And so as teenagers... You start to push out to the fence. And that, well, did God really put the fence here? Let's move it out a little bit, right? And suddenly sin becomes this competition to see who can run into that fence the hardest. And not just with lust. I mean, that's the obvious example because it's using adultery as a metaphor. But the Bible also says to chase after money is adultery, idolatry, worshiping another god. Do you run against the fence when it comes to your greed? When it comes to the desires you have for more, a life of excess and comfort? When something doesn't work out the way you want, you don't get the recognition you were hoping for? Do you, does jealousy flare up in your heart? Train yourself to be sensitive to that. It is much more than a cultural shift. It is a moral shift. But I'll tell you this, the culture sh should change. Should isn't the right word. It will change. A people belonging to God whose affections are for him. A people whose hearts long after comfort and recognition and even good work that he's called you to do. All those things from him. Those people, what will be normal among them is so different from what's normal within the culture that we live. But it isn't a should, right? It's fruit. Fruit comes because you planted the right seeds. If you went around with good fruit and taped it to different trees, it doesn't make them fruit trees. Right? You could use glue. Maybe it would be more convincing. Some of you have a lot of glue on your hearts trying to hold good fruit onto bad seeds that you won't let go of. 
God wants to transform your affection, and the result will be a change of culture. And in the same way, when you look out at the culture with disgust at what they do, realize it's the fruit for them too. No one is transformed by pulling the fruit off the tree. Right? No tree is transformed. If you just get all the blackberries off, they'll stop growing. I don't know if any of you have blackberries, but they never stop growing. Okay. Some of you have allowed blackberries to grow up in your heart. And they're choking out the fruit that God wants to bring in your life. And they're choking out the prayers that you pray. Because God, in his love, will not give you what that heart desires. So how are we letting the world reorient our view? The world chases after money, chases after recognition, chases after whatever sexual tendency you might have, and tries to normalize it. We've got to tolerate it. Well, no, actually, you have to accept it. Well, actually, you have to celebrate it. And anyone who doesn't celebrate it is intolerant. And that line just keeps going. They just keep moving that fence because they have another God. But what alarms me is as Christians, our desire to save the ones that God's called us to save tempts us to change our aim. Say, well, did God really say? You're right. But when we do that, we're thinking in terms of fences. Does it really matter how far out the fence is? You're still inside the playground. And there are many, Jesus says, in that day will come to him and say, Lord, look, we were on the playground, look. And he'll say, I, I don't know who you are. Your heart is not my heart. It's not about your boundary, it's about your aim. Aim for what's best. And when you do, the people whose hearts are longing for God, the one he is calling, will hear you, and the others will hate it. And that's what they did with Jesus. So don't be afraid. All right. So this passage in James, it really seems like, um, well, it doesn't seem like harsh. It's pretty harsh. And, in fact, if there's, I think I have one more slide from James. He goes to James 6. You want to jump one more slide? There it is. It says, he gives us more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, we didn't even get into the fact that the devil's involved in all this. As if he's some minor player in how the world works, right? He's not. He has plans. He wants to tempt you the way he tempted Jesus. Just worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He wants to speak to your ambition. Turn the, bread, the stone into bread. He wants to speak to your comfort, to your safety, your sense of 
am I okay? When I read this, I always thought, man, that is harsh. I needed that because my overlay for God, going back to that conversation, the way I think of myself, and therefore I assume God thinks of me, is that he's frustrated with my failures again and again, that I'm not enough. But look what he says. He says, yes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Is the devil messing with you? With chronic illnesses, with mental health concerns, with financial setbacks again and again and again? Some of that might be your fault, right? But the devil has a hand in that. He wants to mess with you. He wants to ask you all the time, is God really good? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is jealous for your affection. Whenever I hear the word grace now, I don't know when this started. I think it was at our home group. We were talking through the 20 attributes and God is gracious and God is merciful and what's the difference? And mercy is you were a wreck and God still loved you. But what is grace exactly? It's like, it seems so prominent as a word. The gospel of his grace, the praise of his glorious grace, it's all over the Bible. His grace is that he's here now calling you back into his presence. Not just, yes, I forgave you, so you don't have to worry so much about the rules, but my heart is for you. Come back to me. And when you do, good things will come, good fruit. So I want to look at the last verse, the one verse in the Bible where a person expresses godly jealousy is in 2 Corinthians 11. Remember the Corinthian church, kind of a mess, definitely influenced by their culture, sexual sin, all the things that, well, that we might face. One of the things that Paul says as he's wrapping up this letter, after they've repented and tried to do right, is Paul calls them back, their hearts back, to loving God. Second Corinthians 11.2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. The next verse, I didn't add it, it says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's the devil again, drawing your heart away. Humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he will answer the prayers that he's longing to answer even if he doesn't answer them in the way that you're longing for him to answer. Because <laughs> don't forget, he's God. And whenever you want to put him as your servant, you're worshiping some other God. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that your word is clear. Your word is clear that your grace is sufficient, even in weakness. We ask for more grace right now in our hearts. In fact, even as we come up here to take the the bread and the wine, we ask that it would be a morsel of grace going into our inmost parts, that it would come apart in us and get into every fiber of our being, into every cell of our body, would be filled with grace, that our ambition, our comfort, our recognition would come from you, that even our very earthly spouses would never become the object of our worship. Our children would not become the object of our worship, our families, but that you alone, you alone, in Jesus' name, amen.